Well, hey, good morning, everyone. How are we today? Doing well? Um, man, I don't know about you, but I find it difficult to get through a time of worship like that, not being a little more than misty-eyed. Um, just as we sing about the glory, the grace, the goodness, the love of our God, as we hear a story like that of where our hope is found in the truth of the gospel, and um, that fires me up to receive God's word. I don't know about you, but it's so great to be here today. My name's Taylor. I'm the worship pastor here at Harvest. If we haven't had the chance to meet, and I just kind of a privilege to open God's word with you today. So if you have your Bible, you can open it to Mark 8. Um, that's where we're going to be parking today, our passage for this morning. And uh, as you turn there, I just wanted to say this. Um, did you know that it's, it's an exciting season in the life of our church? Like as we start out our time, I just think that there are things that are, that are praiseworthy. They're worth giving God praise for the work that he is doing in our midst, in our community. That as I look back over the summer, that, that after a week at Camp Harvest, our high schoolers were up there, that, that a dozen students stepped forward to be baptized, to profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's amazing. Um, you know, over the last three weeks, we've kind of been pushing, sign up for small groups, and, and we saw just amazing response that over uh, 400 people signed up to jump into a community, a small group to grow in their walk with Christ. And those small groups are kicking off in the next week or two, along with just a ton of other amazing ministries. There's student ministries that's kicking off next Sunday, uh, uh, women's and men's Bible studies, discipleship classes. And I would just tell you that there's so many opportunities for you to take your next step in your walk with Christ for you to invest in your relationship with Jesus and to invest in our community, in the body of Christ. And so don't miss out on that. And, and in fact, there's an opportunity uh, two weeks from today, it will be another baptism weekend where there's gonna be an open invitation for anyone to respond to the call, to come and to step into the waters, into the tank and to confess Jesus as Lord. And those are always amazing weekends where we hear the fruit of what God has been doing in the hearts of individuals. And, and all those things, it's, it's just amazing. So can we just give God praise for all the things he's doing in the life of our church? It's important for us to do that. And I think it's a great way for us to start out the word today because that's so much of what we're talking about. And we want to start uh, reminding ourselves that in our church, in our world, God is building his kingdom. God is saving people. God is sanctifying his saints. God is transforming people. And I don't know about you, but that prepares me to receive God's word. Um, and so we're going to get there in a second. But, but first, this weekend is, is Labor Day weekend, which means, which means a few things. I think that there might be a few more people worshiping with us uh, online today. Do you guys think that's a fair assessment? And if, if you're there, I'll look at, the, this is the camera shot it's on right now. If you're here, we're glad that you're here, but we wish that you were here. So join us next week because we love for you to worship with us. It also means this, that, right, it's the changing of seasons that Labor Day kind of marks this turn from, from summer into fall. Like it turns September 1st, and do you smell that in the air? That's, I, I smell pumpkin spice. <laughs> it's this transitionary time, and we're experiencing that in our church, you know, as we look back on a fruitful summer of ministry, and with expectation and gratitude for what he's already been doing, we look ahead to another fall, winter, spring, where God will continue his work in our local church body. We're in transition. Uh, even this morning, uh, I don't know if you knew this, but down in Harvest Kids, it is a promotion weekend. So kids moved up to their next class. And so if you didn't know that as a parent, I'm, uh, hopefully you send them to the right room. Uh, and may, I don't, maybe go check on them if you're worried. They're, they're, I'm sure they're fine. They'll figure it out next week. And for us, even more relevant for everyone in the room, you're like, I don't, I don't care about Harvest Kids. I don't, I don't have kids. 
This is the last sermon in a series of messages we've been going through this summer. We've been calling it The King is in the Room. And the passage we're gonna be looking at right now, it's, it's fitting because it's also this transitionary moment. It's this, this changing of seasons, this turn of the narrative in, in Mark's presentation of the life of Jesus. And I really believe that it has compelling words for us today, for you to hear today. The Gospel of Mark, it's been described uh, simply by the, uh, the Bible Project, a, a great resource, as showing Jesus and people's reactions to him. This story is broken up into three acts. The first act, chapters 1 through 8, and it, it starts with the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry. Other Gospels start with Jesus' birth. Mark starts with the beginning of his ministry, where he's uh, uh, baptized. He calls his disciples then we see uh, highlights of his teaching, of miracles that he performed. And, and it has people asking the question, who is this Jesus guy? Because he seems pretty amazing. And then in Act 2, chapters 8 through 10, they center around Jesus uh, teaching and doing things that would be his claim to say, I am the Messiah, I am the King. But it would leave people asking the question, uh, what does it mean that Jesus is the Messianic King? And in Acts 3, the, the rest of the book, chapters 11 through 16, it shows that claim that he's the king. It shows the steps that he takes, the process unfold, the story to him truly uh, being hailed as the Messiah, the king. And so today in Mark 8, uh, if you were paying attention, that means we're in Act 2. We're right, right there where we find ourselves sandwiched between people being amazed by who this Jesus guy is, but not fully understanding it. And then in the rest of the story, him making sense of who he is, him revealing his nature as the king. But right here in the middle, it's that, that turning point where he's revealing himself. If the title of this series has been, The King is in the Room, then this morning's message, this moment, is where the king reveals that he's in the room. And so as he reveals that he is the king and that he is here in the room, the question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning, like they were asked then, the king revealed himself, but would, would he be received? Would he be recognized? Would he be followed? Would people enter his kingdom? And those aren't just questions for the characters in the Bible, but for us this morning, this is the question I want at the forefront of your mind, is that the king is in the room. Do you see him clearly? That's the question that I want us to answer this morning as we come. And it's an important question for us. I want to illustrate its importance with, with a memory that comes to mind. Now, did anyone's parents ever embarrass them growing up? Yeah, like, that's a pretty, pretty universal experience. See, not my dad. My dad didn't embarrass us. No, my dad had a way of making us so uncomfortably awkward that it was physically painful, the situations he put us in. And he did this in a bunch of ways. But the, one of the ways that he did this was, was this. We grew up in the Chicago area, and so we'd be walking, you know, around the city, and, um, you know, he, he'd, he'd look over, see someone, and he'd, he'd see, find people that kind of looked like people we knew, like often people from church. Be like, um, hey, isn't that, isn't that Johnny Vandermate over there? Be like, not, no, it's not Johnny, Dad. He's like, it, it's Johnny, isn't it? Like, ha, that's funny, Dad. He kind of looks like him. And most people, that's where the story would end, but not my dad. No, no, no. My dad would be like, hey, Johnny. Hey, Johnny Vandermate. Johnny. It's Pastor Brad. And he would just keep saying that until he got the stranger's attention. And a Johnny lookalike, this is actually Johnny, but a Johnny lookalike would be looking back and be like, who is this insane person? And I couldn't agree more with their assessment of my father. But we do this, church, in our, in our failures to 
properly identify Jesus, to clearly see him, in our inability to recognize him clearly, we, we, best case scenario, we make things a little awkward for others and a fool of ourselves. But more often, the, the, the gravity of it is that to the detriment of ourselves, to the detriment of others in our world, that, that we would live and act based upon our misguided understanding of Jesus. And so uh, my hope is that this morning, that a, that a few things would happen. That first, that we'd be confronted that the ways that our vision of Jesus, of his way, of his kingdom, how they're blurred, how they're off. And in turn, as we recognize those, that we'd receive the invitation from Jesus to see him clearly and to follow in his way. As we ask ourselves that question, the king's in the room, do you see him clearly? So read with me in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. So we're going to be starting out. Mark 8, 27, it says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Who do you say that I am? This is the central question of the, the gospel of Mark. And more importantly, I would, I would tell you this morning, this is the most important question in your life. What do you say about Jesus? Because your experience of reality, your life is at stake in your answer to that question. And in, in these verses, we see people's confessions of faith, the people who had seen and heard about Jesus, you know, and I use the word blurry. Their, their visions were blurry of Jesus. They're blurry visions because there, there might have been elements of truth to the things that they were saying, but they were missing the full picture. They were, they were missing who he actually was. And so as we break down these blurry visions in, in these characters' lives, we'll glean three ways that we, just like them, so often have a blurry, incomplete vision of Jesus. So three things, a blurry vision of the king. The first is this, that my blurry vision of the king is based on my preconceived notions. The disciples and the crowds, they had some understanding of the scriptures that informed their interpretation of his teaching his mission, and it led them to draw conclusions about who Jesus was, but it wasn't enough to draw the right conclusions. You know, some said that Jesus was John the Baptist, like he's the reincarnation of this prophet that the king had just uh, beheaded, and he'd come again to tell of the coming Messiah. Some said that he was Elijah, another reincarnate prophet from thousands of years ago, who maybe this is the guy just, he's Elijah, who's here again to make uh, the, the nation of Israel prosper, just like it did back then. Some said he was just another new prophet, you know? And, and maybe like all the other prophets, they thought, oh, this guy, he's sent from God, but he's come to bring a moral teaching lesson. He, he's come to bring a prophecy about the end times, the future, the Messiah, and maybe he'll do some miracles along the way. Now, Peter, his confession, he said he was the Christ. And I don't know if you know this, but Christ is not just Jesus' last name. Christ is a title for, for, for Jesus. And it mean, it's a Greek word for the word Messiah, for the king, for the promised king. But when Peter says this, his, his vision is still blurry because it carries with it this expectation of the nature of the king. There'd be a king who would go to war against the empire and establish his own kingdom for the prospering, for the benefit of Israel. These confessions are misguided, preconceived notions formed by an incomplete understanding of God's word. 
We do this, we do this often, unfortunately, church. We can find ourselves in this same trap that based on our, our incomplete, limited understanding of God's word, arrive at wrong conclusions. And um, I was just thinking of a few ways that I've experienced this. I grew up in the church. I said I was a pastor's kid earlier. And I just remember in my, my church experience being told things that I, I was supposed to do and that I couldn't do that it turns out they weren't in the Bible. And so just a few examples of, of that. Uh, first, I, I remember, you know, it's like music in church must be sung from the denomination authorized hymnal, and it's filled all with songs that were written hundreds of years ago. And, and when I was somewhere along the way, I was like, whoa, that's not in the Bible? That's insane. We can sing new songs? This is great. You know, I remember growing up being told uh, by my parents, and part of this, I was a pastor's kid, you know, you got to set the example, have a good reputation, but you are not allowed to wear shorts to church. And it turns out that's not in the Bible either. Another one, you know, I remember growing up, it's like tattoos are a sin. It's there in the book of Leviticus. Don't get a tattoo. It's like, oh man, if you actually understand the, the law and what, how Jesus abolished it, tattoos aren't wrong. Silence after that one. Oh man. <laughs> this last one, this, this is a good one. I remember growing up, it was like at church, there is no dancing allowed, even at weddings. You must not dance. And that's not in the Bible either. In fact, there is dancing in the Bible, man. And you're probably thinking, oh, this is just the worship guy. He's edgy. He's got tattoos. He just likes to wear shorts. He likes new music. He doesn't like hymns. He likes to dance. And you're not wrong. All those things are true. But that's not the point. And if you're offended by any of those things, please don't miss the point in the specific examples because the point is this that we need to ask ourselves, are there convictions, Christian convictions, theological beliefs that we have formed, that we've even held maybe since we were kids growing up in church that are preconceived notions based on out-of-context verses or just legalism in, in the conservative background? Ouch, I know. But don't hear me wrong. I'm not suggesting any sort of theological liberalism. But we find ourselves in a, in a day and age that in this time that we need the church of Jesus Christ, his bride, to be faithful to his word, to can't stand confidently on what it actually teaches, for us to be logically consistent, for us not to be hypocrites about what God's word says and what we do, that we need the church to stand because there are going to be convictions and things that this teaches that are not popular, that are not received well. So may the things that we stand on be things that God's word really says. We need to read our Bibles, study them, understand what they actually say, and do so with help and accountability. And, and I just want you to know that here at our church, we've got a bunch of solid resources, you know, mature people and, and robust ministries that are available to help you in understanding God's word. So if you want help in that, just, just let us know. We'd love to help. So uh, preconceived notions, theological beliefs that, that are unclear and not fully true to who God says that he is. The th second thing we see in these incomplete confessions is that a blurry vision of Jesus is based on my preferences. The Jewish leaders, they didn't like some of what Jesus was saying because it infringed on their, their lives, their systems, their, their structure, their authority. And Jesus came and he was a resistance against their preferences. And so they didn't see him clearly. Even the disciples, they were in Jesus's inner circle. And I think because of their personal experiences, their preferences, they had arrived to, to conclusions and implications about who Jesus was that really just served their preferences. It was blurred. 
the crowd, you know, many in the crowd who followed around Jesus saw what he was doing and saying, and they're like, this dude is this, this fiery rebel who is here to take down the political and religious authorities and structures that were in place. But because of their preferences, it informed their conclusion of how that would play out in Jesus' life. And church, similarly, do our preferences inform the way that we see Jesus? Because if your vision of Jesus never leads to conviction, never leads you to a place of considering your habits, the way that you live, the way that you view things, you should be really, really concerned. You know, Tim Keller, who's a pastor we, we, that's quoted here often for good reason, he said it this way. He said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. See, I think, I think of the Israelites that constructed this golden calf, this idol, this God fashioned to serve their preferences that often we are looking for and forming a vision of a God who's just based upon our preferences. And the third way this blurred, blurred vision plays out is this, is that it is exclusively about my prosperity. A blurred vision of Jesus is that he exists for my prosperity. See, the, again, the Jewish leaders... If Jesus had come and his vision of a Messiah was, was for their benefit, like they still get to stay in a position of authority. They still get to be awesome. Like Jesus comes and he's like, hey, super religious people, you guys are awesome. But these broken sinners, yeah, they, they are not good. They'd be like, this is awesome. This Jesus guy's great. But he didn't, he, he, he conflicted with their view of, of good, of what they wanted. The crowds, they followed the signs and the wonders. And they were all about a Jesus that's like, yeah, Jesus, come heal me. Bless me. When you brought that fish in those loaves of bread, that was so cool. Can you do more of that? But Jesus didn't exist for, just for prosperity. Even Peter, all the Jews, again, when he says you're the Christ, they all wanted a Messiah who would come and make the nation of Israel prosper again. To make that uh, a people be prospering, that he, they wanted them to come and be a strong political militant leader that would lead Israel back into success. And again, church, we need to ask ourselves the question, is prosperity the lens through which we look at God, that God exists for our good? I know that this is a bit heavy, maybe convicting for us, it's convicting for me, the ways that this plays out, uh, but one small way that we do this that can grow into a bigger thing is, is this, is by taking verses out of context and using them to be like our, our prosperity promise, like God is for my good verses, you know what I'm talking about? There's a bunch of examples of this, but I'm just going to give you two, okay? One of, one of the ways that we do this, one of the most often misquoted verses is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, as I say that, I know that that verse was referenced in the video. I'm, I'm not indicting the way that uh, uh, Debbie used it. She used it perfectly. That that verse, what it means is that we have an ability to faithfully follow Jesus even in the midst of difficult circumstances. But how often do we hear that verse used as like a, I'm going to win at a sport verse, <laughs> right? That's, that's not what it means. I mean, maybe Serena Williams two days ago, that was, she's like, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can win that 23rd major tennis tournament. It didn't work for her. She lost, and now she retired. She's still the GOAT. She's, she's the best at, at tennis. Sorry if I lost you with that reference, but you get what I'm saying. Second example of a verse we do this with, Jeremiah 29, 11. Last night, there was an audible groan in the room when I said that. Like, oh, Yeah. I have plans to prosper you and not harm you. That verse doesn't mean that, that God just wants you to have an easy, comfortable life. 
First off, that promise was made to the Israelites when they were in exile from, from the promised land. But you might say to yourself, well, we're Christians, and so because we're citizens of heaven, we are exiled in our life here on earth. And you're right, there is truth to that. But even still, the result of the promises, the plans to prosper and to not harm don't mean that our life here on earth is going to be absent of harm and filled with only good things. What that verse means is ultimately in eternity that there's a future that God will allow us to endure through this life, and he will have an eternal future where we prosper and are not harmed got quiet in the room. Sorry if I offended you, but we need to read God's word in context because when we, we, when we take plain reading of scripture and just take it to God, is, God wants me to have great life. It's a blurry vision. So you might be asking yourself the question, okay, you're, you're, you're saying all these things, these are blurry visions of the king, but how, how do we know that? How do we know that these are incorrect conclusions about who Jesus is? Well, let's look at Jesus' response in verse 30. Who do you say that I am? They say these blurry visions. And Jesus says in verse 30, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Don't say anything about me. And this is something we see Jesus do on many occasions throughout the Gospels. He, he heals someone. He forgives someone. He has this teaching about the nature of who he is. And he's like, hey, don't, don't go tell anyone about what just happened. Why does, why does he do that? Doesn't that keep, seem kind of strange? Like, wouldn't you want people to go and tell their people about Jesus? As I was studying this and answering that question, why did Jesus do that? I reached out to uh, Catherine Averill, who's a member at our church. She actually teaches the women's Bible study on Thursday morning, uh, and she helps us uh, write a bunch of our original worship music here, and, and she serves in a ton of ways in our community. But I knew that she had recently taken a class along these lines about the gospel. So I just asked her, you know, hey, did, did you learn anything about this in your class? And she said, her professor at Dallas Theological Seminary taught that there are four reasons for the messianic secret, four reasons Jesus uh, said not to say anything. I I like the first one. This is good. Jesus can do whatever he wants. I mean, yeah. Isn't that like the great Sunday school answer for everything? Jesus can do whatever he wants. True. So right. But still, why? Second, he doesn't want a premature confrontation with Israel's leader. Like, Jesus had this plan. He was going to be arrested. He was going to suffer. He was going to be crucified on the cross, and he was going to die. But he needed to do things before then. He needed to fulfill prophecies. He, he needed to do some more things, and he didn't want the, the timetable to be shortened for that moment. He had plans. Third, he doesn't need bad testimonies. The people who fully didn't understand who Jesus was as the Messiah, he's like, you don't, you don't get it yet, so I, I just don't, don't say anything. Right? Jesus is like, you don't get it, so I'd, I'd, I'd prefer you to not be out there like spreading misinformation about me, so just sip it. Don't say anything. Fourth reason, this. He is developing his disciples. He's preparing them like a teacher. Like, hey, the, the test the, the, is not now. The final isn't here. Like, I've, you still need to learn the lesson because if we, if we take a test now, we're going to have to grade it on a curve because you just don't get it. But I, I still need to teach you. And there's a level of all these reasons being at play, but it's really more of those last two, two ones, and particularly that, that he wanted to teach his disciples. They didn't understand who he was, and he wanted to shepherd them towards clarity. And, and hear this today, that the same is true for you, that wherever you are at on your journey with God, wherever you're at with what you think and believe and know about Jesus, about the Bible, that in your limited, blurred, maybe even confused or uncertain place, Jesus doesn't want you to stay in that place. He wants to invite you into clarity. He wants to invite you to clearly see the nature of who he is as the king. 
And we see this in the next few verses. Verse 31. So he's like, don't say anything. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Jesus says, you're missing it. Here's a clear vision of what I as king look like. Two things, quickly. A clear vision of the king is that Jesus was a suffering servant. Jesus uses the title in this verse, Son of Man. It's used 80 times in the gospel. And it's a beautiful term that's even used in the Old Testament that ultimately would carry um, his divine authority, his authority as both a, a, a divine, a God, and a man. And it's beautiful that he uses this authoritative term because it's followed up by the fact that he would lay down that same authority, that he would suffer, be rejected, and ultimately die. The key verse in the book of Mark communicates Jesus' mission as the suffering servant succinctly. Uh, it says this, Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the amazing thing is that this vision of, the, of Jesus as the suffering servant, it's, it's even there in the Old Testament. Just a few examples, Genesis 3, right? Like this, the serpent's going to come and, and, and crush the head of the, the, the son. That's referring to Jesus as the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, most often uses our Good Friday verses talking about uh, the events that would come on Good Friday. But, but they totally missed it in their blurry visions, they missed it, that King Jesus came not being bowed down to on his throne with a warrior's sword, but Jesus came bowed down with a servant's apron there to suffer for our sake. This is the clear vision that Jesus outlines for his mission, his kingship. I will lay down my life, I will suffer, I'll be rejected, I'll die, but I will rise again to life. And maybe you're even hearing that and you're like, man, that's the gospel. That is the message that I put my faith in that changed and saved my life. That is the good news of the love, of the grace, of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And amen, it absolutely is. But, but what's the problem we see here in this passage? What's the response to this clear vision of Jesus as king? Is it one of repentance? Is it one of following? Is it one of, that's amazing. Thank you, God, that you're going to do that for us. No, no, no. What does it say? Verse 32. In response, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. The audacity. Peter's like, Jesus, Jesus, come over here. Jesus, Jesus, I know that I said that I think that you're the Messiah. And like, I totally, totally do. But the stuff that you're saying is like insane. And you might want to stop saying it because if you keep saying that, like the crowd's probably going to leave. No one's going to want to follow you. Like, it just sounds like this isn't, this isn't really what you want to be saying. Can you believe that? The audacity of Peter to do that. What's Jesus' response to that? Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus is like, I'm going to make an example of this guy. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's like, did you just call me Satan, Jesus? Absolutely. Get behind me, Satan. And maybe you use that in your walk with Christ with like, you say that to a carton of ice cream. Get behind me, Satan. Tell the devil not today. Maybe you, you could use that to your like, spouse, to your kids. When they say something that is theologically off, not, not true of the Bible, you'd be like, get behind me, Satan. That's not it. But for real, this is what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is like, Peter, you're going you're gonna to rebuke me? You're saying that I, I, I'm wrong? This isn't how this, this, this works. Because your vision of who I am, it's, it's off. 
It's of the devil. It sounds extreme that you would call him Satan, but he says that because in a sense, what Peter is opposing is an opposition to Jesus' mission. It's the antithesis of the way of Jesus. And Jesus is like, this has no place in anyone who would say that they follow me. No, 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 this is who I am. I'm the suffering servant. I'm the resurrected king. This is what my way looks like. This is what my word says. And when Peter's confronted by this reality, his response is rejection. Like, Jesus, I don't think this is it, man. And this is the danger that we would do the same. The danger is, is that we would reject a clear vision of God's kingdom for a blurry vision of our own kingdom, that in our blurry visions of Jesus, our pre preconceived notions, our preferences, our prosperity, that we would reject Jesus and choose to be the king of our own lives, reject his kingdom and choose to build our own and this made me think of, of a meeting that I had with, with a student years ago when I was the high school pastor. And, and now this was a student that I had walked through a lot with and, and discipled and met with. And at one point we came and had a meeting and they just said, hey, I've, I'm just having a hard time with the fact that the, I feel like what, what you've communicated when you preach the gospel is that, um, that those who don't believe in Jesus and those who don't live in this way, that they'll go to hell, they'll be separated from God. And, and I'm just thinking of some of my close friends and even family members. And I'm just having a really hard time with that being the teaching of the Bible. And so we kind of just walked through it. And it's like, yes, this, this is what God's word says, but, but here's where hope is. Like, uh, uh, be, be an example to them, love them, pray for them, witness to them in, in the way that you live and what you say. And kind of went well, they walked away, but came back a week or two later and was like, yeah, so I didn't like what you said at all. And so what I did was I went and did my own research uh, about what the Bible teaches about hell. And, and maybe like did my own research. I don't know what's, what are they going to say. But actually what, what he said was um, in, in doing that, I realized that what the Bible teaches about hell is what you said. But I, but I really just don't like that. So the Bible must be wrong. And may, maybe you think that's kind of funny on one end if you're confidently in the word of God. Maybe you're like, I get that. I get that. I, that's, that's where I've been. That's where I am. It's, it's hard for me. And that's, that's heartbreaking, but here's the truth time and time again, that a blurry view of the king will lead to a blurry view of the kingdom, that a blurry view of who Jesus is will lead us to a wrong assessment of what the purpose of life is, that a wrong view of the Messiah, of Messiahship will lead to a wrong view of discipleship. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus doesn't end this interaction with a rebuke. Instead, he turns to give Peter and then he turns to the wider audience, to his disciples who are there. And then there's even a crowd there, those who are following him around. And he gives them all an invitation to follow him. And I want you to hear this today, that that invitation is extended to you today to follow in the way of Jesus. Whether you've been going to church your whole life or this is your first time here. You know, in the summer of uh, 2013, so nine years ago, I worked at uh, Camp Harvest, which is the camp that we still send our high school students to in the summer. And um, when, when I was working there, uh, the camp director, my, my boss, was this uh, super great guy, this faithful, humble, genuine pastor named John Smith. That's not a fake name. That's his real name. And he's still a pastor today. He's served in, in vocational ministry for over 35 years. And something that he said to me that summer has just stuck with me uh, even 10 years later. And what he said is this, the, the best definition of leadership I've heard is a compelling state of affairs. That leadership 
is living and functioning in a way that would draw people to want to live in the same way. And I think part of the reason that that stuck with me is even now today, I look back at him in so many ways as a pastor, that there were, there were things about the way that he, uh, his state of affairs that was compelling to me. And I'm sure that there are many, if not all in the room, who you found yourself in life looking for people, looking for examples, looking for a compelling state of affairs. Longing for a life that seems to have meaning and purpose. Longing for a way that would make life matter. Longing for like a sales pitch of a way that would really fulfill what it's selling. And the good news is that it's here. It's right here. That on a much grander level, if leadership is a compelling state of affairs, that Jesus Christ offers up the most compelling state of affairs. And in his invitation to follow his lead, he offers a life worth living. He's offering the way to human flourishing, the purpose that you are longing for. So in the remaining verses, Jesus outlines two ways of living, two states of affair, two kingdoms, the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. And as Jesus casts a clear vision of both these ways of life, we will be left with a choice. Which way do we want to follow? Which way are we following? And as we leave, which way will we choose to follow today and tomorrow and the rest of our lives? So read with me the remaining verses, starting in verse 34. And calling to the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Man, I think those are such beautiful verses and convicting, weighty, and they speak for themselves. But quickly, let's break down two kingdoms that Jesus presents within these uh, verses, within this teaching. The first kingdom that he presents is the kingdom of self, my kingdom. And the first thing in the way of my kingdom is that it's a kingdom of self-preservation and exaltation. That this is our natural vision of life that I exist for my comfort, my glory, my success, my happiness, my survival, my my way, my view of things. And this is the fundamental uh, way in the heart of fallen sinful man. And if you question if this is true to who you are, what I want you to do is this afternoon, I want to go to the person who's closest to you in your life and ask them, am I ever selfish? Just don't do it right now because we don't want any spouses fighting in church mid-sermon. But this is a great time to remind you at the end of the service, there'll be church leaders up front who'd love to pray with you and offer brief counsel. <laughs> kidding, not kidding. Like, please take advantage of that. But it goes back to our blurry vision of the king, right? It's about my preconceived notions, my preferences, my prosperity, me, me, me. Life is about me and what I want and how I can get it. And if you live that way, you know, but if you are living that way, how's that working out for you? How's that leaving you feeling? What's your experience? Is it fulfilling? Are you happy? Because God's kingdom alternatively is one of self-denial, not self-exaltation and preservation. See, Jesus and his leadership, his compelling state of affairs, he talked about how he'd be the suffering servant, would lay his life down for others, 
that his life exists for something and someone beyond himself, his heavenly father. And he calls us to the same, that our lives would not be ones of self-preservation and self-exaltation, but our lives would be marked by gospel preservation and Christ's exaltation. That carrying our cross often means the cross being lifted high in our lives, just like it is on the, on the outside of this church, that our lives would be one of Christ. Increased, Christ be magnified, I must decrease. And as we deny ourselves for Christ's sake, we deny ourselves for others' sake. That just like Jesus said, these are the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way of Jesus' kingdom, self-denial. Back to our kingdom. The second thing about the kingdom of self it is that is one of approval of man and shame of God or approval from man and shame from God, that we seek the approval of man and, and as a result, we're ashamed of the way of Jesus. And Jesus kind of makes us feel a little dumb in, in pointing this out. He's like, you're ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation? Like for real, you're trying to impress these people? Like why? Is it worth it? Are you, are you getting what you want? What are you having to do? How are you having to compromise? How are you having to, to grovel and to do things for the sake of others' approval? Do you really believe that you're going to get fulfilling approval from other people and things? See, here's the thing. Seeking the approval of man leads us to a shameful rejection of God. And it is a vain pursuit because we'll never get lasting, real, fulfilling approval from anything other than God. And in our pursuit of others' approval, Jesus says he will be ashamed of you on the day of judgment. Simply this, if you lost me in that long paragraph, here's what I'm saying. That seeking the approval of man in things today will lead to the shameful rejection from God tomorrow and in eternity. And is it worth it? Are you getting what you want out of it? Because the alternative in the way of God's kingdom is shame of man, shame from man, but approval of God, approval from God. And again, when Jesus calls us to carry our cross, it doesn't just mean Christ exalted and me minimized. When he says, carry your cross, it's a picture of his crucifixion, that the cross is a picture of shame, of a slow, brutal death in a way to make a mockery of the one dying in front of the entire community. And so will you pick up your cross? When he says that, he means that we, like Christ, will face rejection, suffering, difficult circumstance, possibly even to death itself. Are you willing to face that? Are you willing to experience that? Because by believing that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, by making that exclusive claim, we will be excluded by the world. By holding and modeling and living a Christian ethic that God's word teaches our view of forgiveness, our view of sexuality, our view of finances, authority, just a few examples, it will lead to us being unpopular. It will lead to shame and rejection from the world. But friends, it's worth it. It's worth it because on, on the other side of rejection in this life, on the other side of unfulfilledness in this life, there's approval from God today and for eternity. You can have belonging and satisfaction in Jesus, approval from God. Uh, the last contrast between the two kingdoms is this. In my kingdom, the kingdom of self, the end of it, the result of my kingdom is that it is an unattainable vapor. The language Jesus uses here is that there is no profit in the pursuit of, of the world, of things of the world. That we can have everything in this world 
but we will have nothing apart from him. And it makes me think of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's super uplifting, not a downer at all. But Solomon, one of the richest, uh, uh, most popular, famous, wisest people of all times, he was a king. And he wrote this book, and his thesis statement is Ecclesiastes 2.11, which says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. A vanity, an unattainable vapor, that's the pursuit of the kingdom of self. Doesn't it so often feel like that when you're trying to do life your way, trying to find the thing that you're longing for in people and things of this world, it just feels like you can't grasp it. Like you're grasping at straws. Like it's a carrot dangled on a stick that just can't reach. It's not working. And again, Jesus offers an alternative because in his kingdom, it's not an unattainable vapor, but it is a reality, something that can be grasped and received now and forever. Now and forever. First, God's kingdom is forever. See, many of us are familiar. If you know anything about Jesus, if you know anything about the religion of Christianity, you're probably familiar that, that its central promise is this idea, this gift of eternal life. And that's absolutely true, that there is a forever future in God's presence, free of the limitations and infirmities of this life. And if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in him, that is your future. That is where your hope is put. But... If that alone, it wasn't enticing as an alternative to the unobtainable vapor of the American dream of fulfillment in this life, the kingdom of God is also now. And often we miss this, that it's a present reality. Jesus said this in the last verse that we read, that some who were standing right there wouldn't die until they saw the kingdom of God after it's uh, it has come with power. That word some is more often translated in the gospels, uh, anyone or anything. So I, I think Jesus is tongue in cheek in this moment saying, hey, some, you know, you, some of you are going to see the kingdom after it's come. What he's saying is, I'm here. The king is in the room. The kingdom is at hand. The king, he alluded to this time and time again in his words. Good news, the kingdom has come near. The kingdom is at hand. Seek first the kingdom of God. When he prayed in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He said, I will build my church. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And we know when we talk about the king is in the room, Jesus isn't physically, literally here in the room today, is he? Where's Jesus? Seated at the right hand of the Father and thrown on the praises of heaven. So the king may be on the throne up in heaven, but when he come and when he left, when he ascended, when he sent the Holy Spirit, the kingdom is here and now available for us, right here in our midst. Um, one of the best definitions I found of the kingdom of God is from a pastor named Jeremy Treat, a pastor at a church in, in Los Angeles. And he defined the kingdom of God as this, God's reign over God's place through God's people right here, right now. Jesus offers an invitation to see his vision as king clearly and invites you to follow in the way of his kingdom, building it now and forever. Here's the reality, Jesus will return. He's gonna come again and he's gonna reign, and he will complete and fulfill the building of his kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, he'll establish it. And for those of us who recognize him as king and receive him, we will enjoy his reign and the perfection of eternity. But also when he returns, the invitation will be no more. There will only be a rebuke. There will be a judgment, and those who've chosen to live for the kingdom of self will fail to experience the kingdom of God. And so what I would say as we close is this, is the kingdom of God is available. 
The kingdom of God is advancing right here in our midst, but not everyone's gonna see it. And so once again, that question, the king is in the room. Do you see him clearly? Will you leave this place living for your kingdom or follow in the compelling affairs of Jesus in the way of his kingdom? I want you to bow your head. God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your compelling state of affairs that you died for us, for our sins, that we could be forgiven. You rose again, uh, that we could have new life. God, would we embrace the way of your kingdom and and no longer uh, seek to live in our own ways? We see you clearly and follow you. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.